ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring a new podcast from FP Studios, Foreign Policy's The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, also known appropriately as Hero, which highlights female entrepreneurs from around the world as they make changes large and small to the global economy. In just a moment, we are going to play the first episode of the series, which features a new approach to franchising affordable childcare that is transforming the lives of low-income mothers and female daycare owners in Kenya. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we have our third of our four-part series sponsored by the African Development Bank on how building human capacity through education, health and nutrition is essential to the continent's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. So stay tuned after the episode. And now, Rena Nainen, the host of Hero and I, sat down to tell you more about the series and how it all came to be. So thank you for joining us, Rena, on FP Playlist. So your podcast is called Hero, which stands for the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Tell me a little bit more about where the idea came from. You know, what's interesting, I, I think maybe I should start with the title. One of our producers, they were kicking around ideas for uh-huh. this podcast, and they were looking at these women and the impact they were having in different economies. And they thought, well, shouldn't this be called hero instead of the W for women, the symbol of the O with the cross underneath it. That's how we get the word hero. But we're looking across the globe. Uh, what's holding women back as far as being entrepreneurs, having more economic independence? And we're looking at the issues, particularly data. And that was sort of one of the big eye-opening moments for me was just how important collecting data is from country mm-hmm. to country to be able to show, here's the evidence. It's, this isn't just what we're thinking of the influence women can or can't have mm-hmm. in the labor force. Right, because there was that incredible statistic in the trailer for the show that countries could increase their economic growth by almost 25% if they would just get their women in the workforce and lift the obstacles to allow them to do that. And obstacles, we look at these different countries and what those obstacles are. You know, for instance, in India, we kind of look at the workforce that you don't think about, the informal workforce, which are Mm -hmm. the cleaners, the women doing the the dirty work that you might not consider, that women also doing incredible work of childcare and, and these 
labor fields that you don't think about that really contribute to an economic society and bolstering them can make a transformative difference in the economic feel of a country. So you spoke to women around the world for this podcast, but I'm curious, what were the common themes that you saw from country to country? Culture. You know, despite going from country to country, it, it feels like women are dealing with the same things. One is awareness of getting people to understand how difficult their situation is and why mm-hmm. they need help and support from the government and, and in the private sector. The second thing is how when they organize collectively, what a difference it can make for their livelihood and for their families. Mm-hmm. I think those were really the two big takeaways for me. One thing that struck me, because the episode that we're going to play today is uh, about an organization in East Africa that helps women access affordable and effective safe childcare to allow them to go to work. And I was just so struck by that because it just seems like such a global, universal problem, no matter if you're, you know, in, in, in the wealthiest parts of the United States or, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, childcare is a nightmare no matter where you are. It's so true, Amy. It's absolutely true. And that's why I just sort of feel like while we're looking at these different countries, what was like a wow moment for me was, oh my gosh, we're all dealing, whether you are first world or third world or whatever world, we're dealing with the same issues from economy to economy. And how just a little bit of support from the government or the private sector could really transform the livelihood of so many families. And you mentioned the childcare story from Kenya. It's called Kidogo. It's these childcare centers that have popped up and allowed what they call mamapreneurs, these (laughs) female entrepreneurs who are moms, to start these centers. And what they found is you start these centers it gives better childcare for these kids because yeah. they're being educated. And then it also allows the parents to go out and work and earn an extra income for their families. So in that episode, you take us to Kenya. Where else are we going with you on this podcast? We are going to Kenya. We're going to Uganda. Fascinating story of a woman there whose husband she got to turn around and actually support and seeing the transformation of how having a program like this that that goes in and, and educates cultures and communities about why having women work could could be so good for your family. We go to India as well, which is fascinating, especially in the midst of uh, how ravaged India is right now under COVID. Mm. That is very much an underlining theme and from country to country that we go to about you just can't separate COVID and economies Mm. and women and the workforce and how now you've got to look through a COVID lens and how do you get these people back up and running and looking at how they unionize, how do they collectively bargain and and get together and form these groups that then give them a larger voice in in their workforce. So as we begin to look ahead to the world after COVID, and I say this fully aware that some parts of the world are still very much in the throes of this. But there's a lot of talk about using this moment to kind of to reset and to reboot and to think about, well, what have we learned from this moment? And and do we want to build back different as we try and build back better, to, to quote Joe Biden? What is your sense, having worked on this series, about the awareness of involving and empowering women around the world as part of that effort to kind of rebuild and grow after this horrendous pandemic? That's a great question. I think what I found has given these different countries the most momentum is having the data, having the statistics Mm. to be able to go to places and say, this is what we're dealing with. So first, I think before doing this podcast, I didn't realize how much collecting data can really help. 
if you aren't able to do that, I think educating, you know, having these programs that go in and tell women you're capable of doing this. We mm-hmm. know that you've got these limitations with childcare or whatever it might be. Let's figure out a way to make it work. But also educating their partners. You know, a, a lot of these cultures, it's the men for so long that have had the pressure and have thought that they this is it. And the women aren't able to be acknowledged for the work they do at home or around uh, their society, whether it's picking up trash or, or doing the laundry or, or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. that they deserve an equal wage and to be and to have rights, you know, vacations, sick time off, you know, when COVID struck in India, many of them didn't, weren't able to work and to be able to collectively bargain and say, you know, we deserve some sick time, paid time off, you know, whatever it might be that you have rights in a workforce and you should demand them. And that, you know, gathering together, you have a larger voice by being able to form an organization. And it comes down to economics, the labor force, and looking at how can we better bolster women to get them to better support and help their families. And and a lot of that comes to data and education. That was Rena Nainen. And here now is the episode, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, Making Childcare Better and Affordable in Kenya, from our very own Foreign Policy. Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and you're listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a new series from Foreign Policy. So it was uh, nearly 10 years ago that I first stumbled across one of these baby care centers. I was working for a large nonprofit in Kenya. This is Sabrina Habib. Originally from Canada, she was drawn to Kenya by the idea that she could make a difference in a country where, according to the World Bank, more than a third of the people survive on less than $2 a day. I had the chance to go out to an informal settlement or a slum uh, just outside of the city. And uh, we'd heard about this concept of baby cares and wanted to learn a little bit more. And so I I remember being escorted by uh, some community members to this uh, gated compound. Uh, We took our shoes off at the door and then opened the door. And the first thing that struck me was the smell. There was no sanitation at all. So the smell of urine, of feces, it was overwhelming. And it was completely dark. I couldn't see anything. I'd come from this bright sunlight outside. And so I began to step forward and I felt my foot hit something. And I looked down and it was a little girl. And I was so, so horrified that I'd almost tripped on this child that I instinctively leaned forward. I picked her up. And as my eyes became adjusted to the darkness, I saw babies all around me, 15, 20 of them, all awake, but completely silent. These kids had learned not to cry anymore because they were so severely neglected, they didn't receive any attention. Or in some cases, they were actually given alcohol or a a low-cost sleeping pill to keep them hushed through the day. And I learned that this was the best childcare option for working moms living in the informal settlements. 
seek the truth with an open mind. What drew us to wanting to hear from Sabrina is not that she discovered squalor or an underserved sector of the economy. It's that a decade ago, she decided she had the ability to transform, innovate, and make a real difference. And so that's exactly what she did. I think they talk about it as a moment of obligation. Sabrina ended up founding Kadogo. It's a word that means small in Swahili. But the change she's hoping to bring is, in fact, enormous. Sabrina's working to build a network of affordable, high-quality childcare centers across Kenya. Kadogo's mission is twofold. The primary one is to provide great childcare to low-income women. But the organization also sees itself as an engine for economic advancement, for women looking to start or improve their own childcare centers. Sabrina calls these women mamapreneurs. So while Kidogo is a nonprofit, the individual daycare centers themselves are not. The women who run the centers have a chance to earn a good livelihood. Kidogo's budget primarily depends on grants and philanthropy, which is then used to help renovate individual childcare facilities, pay program staff, and train and mentor their mamapreneurs. Mamapreneurs like Lydia War from Nairobi. My typical day starts with welcoming children into the daycare. I also do the health check using the thermogun. Thereafter, I do the diaper change and potty. From there, we do the circle exercise as the children wait to be served porridge. Afterwards, the children now get ready to be engaged in different activities. That's the daily routine, the general hygiene, tracking finances, material development. I can't even mention all of them, I just learned a lot. Mamapreneurs running Kadogo's franchises first take three months. That's where they learn early childhood best practices, but also how to run a sustainable childcare business. Kidogo has really helped me in terms of making profit out of my daycare business. The business has expanded from one room to now two rooms. I've also added another caregiver whom I'm able to pay. The number of the children have also increased. So Kidogo isn't just shaping children's futures in Kenya. It's also improving the current lives of women. And that's what the hidden economics of remarkable women is all about. The ways, large and small, that women are changing the status quo to improve their lives, their families, and ultimately the world. And of course, women can't do this alone. They also need policies and programs that enable the best chances for success. But let's get back to Kidogo founder Sabrina Habib. She explained to me why she chose childcare centers as the place where she wanted to focus her energies. It's because this is where she felt she could have the greatest impact in the lives of individual Kenyans. A child who grows up in one of those baby care centers, their life's trajectory is already written for them. So uh, half of them are stunted, which means they're too short for their age because of poor nutrition. That impacts the brain architecture. And so they will grow up uh, with cognitive deficits, with socio-emotional delays, and they will go on to primary school. Maybe they'll go on to secondary school, maybe not. And they will continue kind of menial labor jobs. Uh, 
girls will probably be forced into early marriage, and they'll just continue this intergenerational cycle of poverty. As sad as this all is, the, the hope here is that research continuously shows us that the first five years of a child's life is so important that if we can just make a few adjustments, if we can provide clean, nurturing, safe environments, we can transform the trajectory of a child's life and potentially break that family out of poverty. When you started, how did you set the standard different for childcare in Kenya? Tell me a little bit about how you wanted to make this operation different. There is no standard. There are no regulations. There are no policies on what childcare could look like. So I, I did this with my, my now husband, and we started by thinking about our own childhoods and thinking about the centers that we went to and thinking and digging into kind of global best practices of what young children need. When we started this, we surveyed hundreds of, of mothers and childcare operators and found that they believe that children start learning at the age of three. And we know the research says something quite different. And so just starting with that point of these early years are so crucial and then talking about how we can use simple, affordable ways to get children the best start to life. Tell me a little bit about the challenges of starting a daycare center halfway across the globe. I mean, this isn't even in your backyard. What did you find was the hardest when you're getting started? Was it getting the money? Was it the regulations, the cultural norms that you had to navigate? I think probably the hardest one was around that, the norms and getting parents bought in to what we were trying to create here. And it's really interesting. We, we were talking initially about training all of these baby care operators and bringing them into a network. And the feedback we received was, um, there's nothing wrong with my center. I grew up in something just like this and I turned out okay. So people were defensive. Yeah, very much so. And we realized quite quickly that we had to stop telling people and we needed to show them. And so that's when we started these you know, Kidogo owned centers of excellence. And it comes from a place of families in poverty want the best for their children. And they believe the best is if they can read and write at a very, very, very early age. Tell me a little bit more about the trainings with the mompreneurs. Yeah, so we, uh, we find childcare operators and we put them through a training program. And at the end of it, if they are able to improve the standards at their daycares, we invite them to become a Kidogo franchisee. And we call the daycare operators we work with mamapreneurs. And the training encompasses both the early childhood development elements, as well as the business part, because at the end of the day, they are running their own micro businesses. And we're dealing with mamapreneurs that have no more than a primary school education. But what's really interesting is we actually start all of our training with a session on confidence. Because for far too long, childcare operators are told that they were not good enough to become real teachers. And so we start with confidence about, you know, why are you doing this work? What is the world that you want to see? How is your role going to be used to shape the young minds of, of little children? And why is this work so important? And then there's a pride that comes with that. And it's beautiful to watch, you know, mamapreneurs come into trainings and their shoulders are slouched and they don't look at you in the eye. And then at the end of the program, they, they have dreams and visions for where they want their centers to grow to and the children that they want to serve and have them eventually contribute to society. So I think that that's been one of the coolest things to see. Sabrina, how has COVID impacted your centers? Were you forced to shut any of them down? 
Yeah, COVID was tough on everybody. It was particularly tough on the childcare industry. It was not a time for us to stay on the sidelines and wait this out. It was about, you know, how do we roll up our sleeves and figure out how to meet the needs of young children now in their home? And uh, we came up quite quickly with new business streams. So we launched play packs, so monthly play packs that got into the hands of young kids. So just having something for young children to do was great. And I think over the course of the year, we had created, assembled, and distributed over 60,000 play packs. We launched a digital caregiving stream. So we have all of this amazing content that we train our mamapreneurs on. And then also a two-way Ask the Child Care Expert hotline, um, which was awesome because we had a sense of the pulse of what was going on in the communities and what was on parents' minds through that very, very difficult period. I'm so fascinated by these mamapreneurs, you know, the owners of these centers. What do you think they've done? for their ability to better their lives and really accumulate wealth independent of men. Our mompreneurs are rock stars. They're they're incredible. And the, the name it was very intentional, right? These are women who embody the elements of a mother or a mama, nurturing, loving, caring, patient, but also they're they're hustling, they're entrepreneurs, they're strategic and work hard and persevere in spite of challenges as we saw last year. We do have issues with husbands sometimes, husbands who see their wives run these thriving businesses from, from something very small and want to get involved or want to take the money. Um, we're having to develop a new strategy to engage husbands on why this is great. <laughs> I think we've also had issues with husbands who find that their wives are working too much now and uh, are not home in time to make dinner. So again, kind of dealing with some of these challenges that come with having women that are so confident and empowered. Um, we've had a few uh, mamapreneurs who were in really abusive relationships and were able to detach from their husbands because they have the economic independence now to do so. I think it comes back to if they believe that what they're doing is important and valuable, then nothing will stop them. You know, it's incredible. You've created a community. You've solved a lot of problems that had already arisen in the area that people needed to deal with. But when you look at the policy landscape in Kenya, particularly around child care, how do you think that you are personally influencing it? As an organization, we know that no matter how much we scale, how big we get, there's no way we're going to reach every child. And so we need to be working with the government on advocating for better, more progressive policies. And we've had some really great quick wins on some policies, but I think the challenge comes into having those policies actually be implemented rather than just sitting as paperwork filed somewhere. Ultimately, our, our theory here is that if women and mothers and communities understand the importance of childcare and advocate for that, then policymakers who are working on three to four year election cycles are going to need to start listening. And so how do we influence the behavior of parents? And one of the coolest studies that was done last year was showing how Kidogo parents have shifted their hierarchy of how they choose a childcare center. So having been exposed to quality childcare, they're now choosing centers that have a better learning environment, that have better nutrition, that have qualified and trained staff. And so if we can start shifting how parents choose childcare centers, it's going to force childcare centers to improve their quality and make it really a, a strong issue 
that communities and uh, elected officials need to start addressing. You've given so much thought to this, and it really is just so deep. The, the tentacles of the operation in community and with culture and with government. What do you wish you had known about the childcare industry when you had started that you feel could have made a difference? I think when we started, we we really thought about this as an early childhood education issue, and really focusing only on education. And it took us a couple of years to realize that. When you're dealing with zero to three-year-olds, the needs are very different. It's it's health and nutrition and social protection and all of these different sectors. And I think that's part of what makes childcare so brilliant is that it touches every department. You know, there's the health component, there's the labor component for women's economic empowerment, there's the social protection component, and I think we've we've only now really started to approach all of these different departments. But I think that's also what makes it super difficult is that childcare doesn't fit squarely in one place, which is why there's no ownership or accountability. And I think that's one of the biggest moves we need to make as a sector is potentially framing this more as an economic issue. Because I I think I was very naive at the beginning to think that if we could show policymakers, and we've brought them, we've brought them to our centers, we've tried to show them the reality of working moms living in the informal settlements. And they, there is empathy there, but there's no action. And I think I, I now, a little bit wiser, a little bit with more gray hairs, um, know that policymakers don't make decisions based on their hearts. They make it based on their wallets. And I think if we can start framing this as an economic issue, that childcare will unleash this potential for women to work and have peace of mind at work and take fewer days off of work because their children are not sick, as often, we can completely boost the economy of nations. And then the, the spillover effects, which I think is re- you know the real important part, is we're then having children develop that are cognitively smart and have critical thinking skills and socio-emotional development, and that will be the future human capital for these countries. It's great advice. The company is called Kidogo, operating in Kenya, child care centers and mompreneurs. Serena, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. In the wake of the global pandemic, journalists at the Financial Times have been asking whether we have been handed a once in a generation opportunity to create a greener future. The Financial Times offers unrivaled global and regional climate coverage. Its journalists offer in-depth analysis, opinion, and the insight you need to inform your decisions. Use the FT to explore key climate topics from a finance and business angle, to spot risks and opportunities and plan your climate strategy. To read more, visit ft.com slash newagenda. So Sabrina Habib created this network of affordable childcare centers and opportunities for women to become mompreneurs. But what's the larger impact of Kidogo? How transformational can good childcare be for low-income women? To answer this, we turn to Patricia Wakulo, Associate Research Scientist with the African Population and Health Research Center. She's an early childhood specialist and has studied Kidogo. What Kidogo does is to show through their hubs, which are, in quotes, centers of excellence. They show through the hubs how it can be done. One of the things that uh, Kidogo really emphasizes is keeping everything at low cost. 
So like, for example, some of the materials that they use within their centers are mainly homemade or locally produced materials. Why do you think it is that people ignore paid childcare in urban Africa? It's not really one area where you see instant results. So for example, if I think about it from the a budget holder's perspective, it's not one area where you put in money and see instant results out of that. The results tend to come after a long time and many people are not willing to wait for that long period for them to see results because we are talking about long-term investment, long-term return on investment. Patricia, how has COVID affected childcare centers? Wow. Um, what we know from our own experiences, particularly at the beginning of COVID, many of the childcare facilities shut down. Wow. One of the issues that faces childcare facilities is that whereas they don't really have a home, in quotes, a home um, ministry, they don't belong to the Ministry of Health, they don't belong to the Ministry of Education. When the restrictions were put in place, including school closures, childcare facilities somehow fell under schools mm. and all of them had to be closed. And that really created a very negative impact on the incomes of the childcare providers because many of them rely on these facilities for their livelihoods. And I imagine there is a ripple effect. It's not just the childcare providers who work there, but also the families that are putting their children there. How did that impact get impacted? So for many of the families that use these childcare facilities, they use them on a daily basis. And some of them use them because they need to go out to work. With the childcare facilities being closed, it meant that many of the parents or the caregivers bringing their children to these facilities were no longer able to go to work. And we found that as soon as some of the restrictions were lifted, many of these families opted to move to their rural homes because it, it was no longer possible for them to survive in Nairobi. Patricia, when you step back, how do you think Kenya should plan for a recovery post-pandemic that really better invests in childcare? One of the ways that the government can really support this sector is to just be more involved in the running of the daycare facilities. Many of these facilities are private run out of people's homes and the regulation in the sector is very, very poor, which means anybody can do whatever they want. Nobody is watching what is happening in the child cares. So nobody, nobody feels answerable. There's no accountability in this sector. And I think if the different players are brought together, then we'll make headway in the changes that we would like to see in this sector. Mm. What would you say to people listening why this is so important when it comes to the economic empowerment to look at childcare and to have this bolstered by support from the government and outside entities? The one incentive I think I would uh, talk about is that if we work to improve this sector, we'll have a big ripple effect through several sectors of the economy. One, we'll see women, their own mental well-being is going to increase or improve. And in this way, their overall health is going to be improved. The result of this is that they are going to be more productive members of the society because of their overall health and well-being being at a good level. The other thing is the children themselves will see positive impacts on their outcomes. 
most immediately will see impacts in the way that they interact with others, the way they engage with their environment. And then in the future, if we were to follow up these kids, we would see positive outcomes for them as well. And even at the household level, you find that if women who are mainly the ones who run households, thinking about how they support different activities within the household, whether it's the livelihood of the household, supporting the different unpaid care activities within the household. If women are in a good place and their state of being is optimal, then you'll see a ripple effect in so many other sectors. Patricia Wekulo, Associate Research Scientist with the African Population and Health Research Center. Patricia, thank you. Thank you, Rina. The ripple effect. How do we create it? Hearing from these women today, you realize how one painful incident of nearly tripping over babies became the catalyst to starting a whole network of opportunity. Certifying child care centers, empowering children, individual mothers, individual mompreneurs. And over time, it all starts to add up. You know, as we were coming up with a name for this series, we did a lot of brainstorming sessions, kicked around a bunch of names. And I can tell you that the hidden economics of Remarkable Women was by far the longest title we thought of. And then one of the producers said, actually, you can shorten it to the acronym HERO. That if instead of W for women, you use the symbol for female, which is the O sitting atop a small cross. And we thought in some ways that too was too serendipitous not to use. But I'd like to make one small little mention about the word hero as it relates to this series. While we will be telling the stories of individuals like Sabrina, the changes they're making or hoping to make really come from the collective action of many heroes, like Lydia, the mompreneur from Nairobi that you heard from earlier. And next week, we'll hear from the women in Uganda who are saving money in groups and challenging gender dynamics within their own homes. Uh, my husband used to hide his money because he didn't want me to know his income. So before the dialogues, it was so bad. After the first dialogue, my husband felt so good. In fact, he said, sweetheart, you think I should also be doing some of these things, like peeling, washing, and looking after the babies? There are many heroes in the stories we're sharing. Change often starts with one individual, but it also often ends with many more fired up to make a difference. It's one thing to want to empower women, but there'll be no ripple effect if you're not also changing social norms. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, write us a review. It helps us spread the word about what we're doing. This show is hosted by me, Brina Ninen. Laura rosbrow Tellum is our senior producer. Andrew Perella is our editor. Rob Sachs is our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, and Zamone Perez. Thank you. And we'll be back in your feed next week. And that was the episode, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, Making Childcare Better and Affordable in Kenya, from Foreign Policy. My thanks to Rina and the podcast team for sharing this incredible new series with us. And now, as promised, the third of our four-part series on women's important role in the post-COVID-19 recovery, sponsored by the African Development Bank. Hear how women are essential to a post-COVID recovery on the African continent. Listen in. 
Hello, I'm Carol Pino, and I'm here with Esther Desanu, manager of the African Development Bank's Affirmative Action for Women in Africa, AFAWA, and we're here to talk about women in Africa's post-COVID recovery. This is the third of a four-part sponsored series from the African Development Bank on women's economic empowerment and their participation in post-COVID recovery. For Africa, I don't think we can talk about recovery if we're not talking about SMEs, and we definitely cannot talk about SMEs without including women-owned SMEs in it. SMEs, small and medium enterprises, they were hard hit by COVID, especially at the smaller end, and even below SMEs with micro-enterprises, an entrepreneur and perhaps a few employees. These are usually part of the informal sector. They are predominantly women-owned, and COVID exposed how vulnerable they were in times of crisis. Women entrepreneurs were nowhere to be seen. Why? Because they were in the informal sector. Businesses in the informal sector aren't registered, they don't pay taxes, and they don't have insurance. So as governments move to provide financial assistance to businesses during COVID, the informal sector, of which the majority are women, lost out. So it was very difficult to then decide, well, first of all, who do you give the money to? And if you have to give, what do you base yourself on in order to give a certain amount versus another? The real risk for women in the informal sector is that their businesses simply can't grow. The main reason is financing, and that's what will propel them forward. The majority of the financial mechanisms that are put in place for the small and medium-sized enterprises are funding mechanisms that are meant for the formal sector. And as long as women entrepreneurs remain in the informal sector, we will not really see benefiting from all these different investments. Helping women transition from the informal to the formal sector, registering for their businesses, making sure they have access and the know-how to sell and trade online, ensuring they have access to financial institutions and capital. Ultimately, it will benefit everyone. And so there is a need to accelerate the kinds of reforms that are put in place and to go a step further in ensuring that those reforms are implemented so that women can move forward, access the funding, grow their businesses, access the skills as well. Thanks for listening to this special four-part mini-series on women and Africa's COVID recovery. To see a video of my conversation with Esther Desanu and others, head to foreignpolicy.com. For more on the African Development Bank, check out afdb.org. That's all from Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, 
Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>